can. So, everyone here is very familiar with our uh, subject matter, so I won't re-plow uh, all that ground. Um, so, we're this will be our final um, study on this particular subsection of the subsection <laughs> of the attributes of Christ, which are or the attributes of God proper, which are attributed to Christ specifically. Um, and we'll look at God's omnipotence. The next um, direction of this will be the works of God, I think. The works of God attributed to Christ. Um, so it'll be similar, but, but unique. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, so, uh, I should have given you this, but I didn't. Let me read you a definition. Of course, when we say when we say omnipotence, just at a just at a initial hearing, what do we think as far as definition? All powerful, right? That's omniscience. Yeah. So the omnis they call them the omnis because omni is like a prefix for all. So it's omniscience is all knowledge. Omnipresence. Is all uh, omnipotence is all powerful. Think of potent, like something something stinks or something is really effective. You'd say that's potent. Or the King James potentate. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I need to listen better. My wife said, "Yeah, potentate is is the ultimate, the one who has all potency, right? The ultimate." That's why the our word today was sovereign, right? The one who rules over all. So listen to this definition because it, it it carries with it two qualifiers that are very important. I want you to see if you can pick them out. Um, it says the attribute of omnipotence refers to God's unconditioned power to do that which he wills in accordance with his nature. Now, what qualifiers were in that? Did you pick up on them? Right. So, because in other words, the old philosophical conundrums are, can God create a rock that's too heavy for him to lift? Right? Or can God sin? Is he able to sin? Or can God kill himself? Like you see, so... You know, these people think they're so clever and they say, ah, I can prove to you your theology of God is wrong with these little philosophical conundrums. So that's why this attribute in particular needs to be carefully defined. And we'll see this from the scripture, not to say God can do absolutely anything without qualification, but that he is able to do everything that he wills. Right. And to act in accordance with his nature. Right? So it's qualified by, by the sum of the perfections of his attributes. And it's qualified by what he desires to do. Okay? And we'll see all this from the scripture very much. So, um, so let's go down the list. Remember, um, kind of the earliest... Uh, uh, Stages of redemption history, we see God identifying himself this way. When Abram was, Genesis 17, 1 there, when Abram was 99 years old, 
Yahweh appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So the emphasis there being on the title, uh, the descriptive title, if you will, um, that God gives to Abram to identify himself. Uh, and that's, um, um, what is it there? Uh, El Shaddai is the way we anglicize it. It's a little different in Hebrew, but and you remember what that means? It occurs a lot. It, it kind of means the same thing as potentate. Well, it's well, that's the way it's translated, and it's it's the Most High God. So, in other words, when He says, "I'm um, God Almighty," I'm El Shaddai. Um, it means He's the God of all the gods. He's the God who's over all. He's the the sovereign God. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's what that. So it's it's the title Elohim, which pagans would use to describe their gods. Elohim. It's actually the plural. But Hebrew has plural singulars, so don't don't get thrown off on that. But when he says I'm El, that's short for Elohim, the God Shaddai, Shaddai, right? It's God the Most High. So he's, he's, he's setting himself in sovereignty and power over all other professed gods of men's imagination. Do you look like you're <laughs> bubbling over with something? Back in the day when I was making up witnesses, they would always use that to say that Jehovah was above Christ. Because they well, we'll see what. Yeah, I know that's not true, but I'm just saying that. I'm, I, just, I just clicked well, into my head. I remember them constantly. No, saying, that's good. Constantly saying to me, like, oh, but he's the most, like, Jesus is a God, but he's the most high. Yeah. Well, we're going to conclude in Revelation where Christ says he's El Shaddai. So just remember that. <laughs> and it'll give you a little fodder for them. Hey, good morning. So we're. Uh, Today we're looking at the attribute of omnipotence, and we've, uh, just to catch you guys up to speed, um, you know, a, sort of a cursory understanding of omnipotence is all power, or all powerful, but when it comes to um, defining God's omnipotence, we're careful to say that that refers to his unconditioned power to do what he wills. In accordance with his nature, um, and uh, and then we've looked at the first one, Genesis 17:1, uh, where God identifies Himself to Abram, then Abram as El Shaddai, as we anglicize it a bit, um, which means the Most High God, the God who's sovereign over little all little g gods, etc. And then Brandon's just made a point, which I want everybody to hone in on. Say it again about your with Jehovah's Witnesses, because this is important. My experience with Jehovah's Witnesses is they use El Shaddai as a name that's only given to Jehovah God, as they would say, and they distinguish between that and a God, like they say Jesus is in John. Their their skewed translation, world translation of John chapter one, they say Jesus, you know, was with God, he was a God, was that was God. So they, that's how they try. They can't really do it, but they, that's how they try to, to split that chasm and say, oh, well, he's, he's the almighty God, and he's just a God. Yeah. So, See, so if, yeah. If, if, if 
Jehovah, which is not God's name. It's that's a transliteration, a butchered transliteration. But if if the Old Testament God Yahweh, as best we can pronounce it, says I'm the Almighty God, the one Almighty God, then anyone who else, anything else that's called God, has to be subordinate to Him. So okay, and I told Brandon, you know, hang on, because I hope we can get there. If not, we'll jump to it because what we'll come to see in Revelation is that Jesus is called the Almighty God. <laughs> so, anywho, we'll jump back. Hopefully we can get there. Remember, look at Genesis 18, 14. Uh, similarly, next chapter over, but on your list, that um, after God had given the promise of a son to Abram and Sarah, uh, Sarah laughs because she's you know, past the uh, that point in her biology, and Abram's old as dirt too. Um, and she says, essentially, it's impossible uh, that can't happen. We see this from Genesis eighteen fourteen, and and as we look at these, remember how we carefully <sighs> defined it. That the attribute of omnipotence refers to God's unconditioned power to do that which He wills in accordance with his nature. So, very important. Um, so, he responds then to Sarah's laughter, which in his omniscience he knows, even though he doesn't hear, uh, is anything too hard for Yahweh? Is anything too difficult? In other words, is there anything that if he wills to do it, he can accomplish. And of course, the rhetorical answer is no, nothing is too difficult for him. And that's proven um, by a year later, what you see in the rest of the verse, that Sarah, postmenopausal Sarah, um, indeed does have a son. So, uh, Job, look at Job. I love to notice uh, how many of these attributes were asserted in. in just primeval history in the earliest thinking of, of God's image bearers. Um, but here Job, after the Lord rebukes him um, for questioning his judgments, good morning, y'all, um, says this, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. What, what does that mean? Well, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Uh, so the conundrum of creating a rock that's too big for him to pick up right, is moot when we examine this attribute biblically. Job says all that, all that you purpose, see, they understood that. The faithful line at least understood that, even the earliest stages of human history, that the God of heaven, the most high God, no purpose of theirs could be thwarted. All right, next one down. Got a lot of these. Psalm 33, 8. Uh, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why would that be? Verse 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So we see that divine fiat accomplishing everything that he purposes in his holy nature. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations 
to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. What does that mean? We have to remember the context. When he, here, when it refers to the nations and the peoples, he, it's, it's uh, indicative of those who are the enemies of God, those who are the enemies of God's people, here and particularly in the language of the Old Covenant Israel. So those who would defy, uh, uh, would try to thwart God's purposes, like Pharaoh, let's say, he brings... Uh, uh, their planning, their counsel um, to nothing. And then verse 11, remember our definition, the counsel of the Lord, in other words, what he purposes, what he wills, stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Or uh, summarize it well from Psalm 135, uh, six, the next one there. Whatever the Lord pleases. What are some synonyms? <laughs> Just a joke. <laughs> what are some synonyms for that? For pleases? Wills, wishes, desires, wants. <laughs> right? When we put it so curt, it's offensive to our, uh, as Scott, what does Scott always say? Our, Common sensibility, not common sensibilities, our contemporary sensibilities, something like that. It really stings, but <laughs> when he says it in a good way. Um, but in other words, whatever the Lord wills, he does. Whatever he wants, he accomplishes. Right? Whatever he desires, he gets. And then look at the realms. And, and try to put yourself in ancient times where there were territorial deities, right? Gods of the sea who had domain over the sea, gods of the mountains, right? Fill in the blank. Gods of the depths, uh, gods of the stars. And he says, of Yahweh, though, he does whatever he pleases in heaven, on earth, in the seas, and in all the deeps. So, in other words, He's God Almighty. Right? He's the God that's over all. He's the potentate, um, as Brother Shell brought up earlier this morning. Uh, similarly, Isaiah 43:13. There. Also, henceforth, I am He. Good morning. Welcome. Uh, there is none who can deliver from my hand. So you see the bold declaration there, and that's um, in the sense of uh, judgment here, I think. Um, and that's what, if his hand reaches out with a purpose, there's none who can stay it. Yeah, that's, yeah. He, um, because none can deliver it from his hand. He works, so there's activity um, and who can turn it back? Right. We'll look at this that more clearly. But I love this. It's one of my favorite little snippets of the Psalms. Um, and for the Christian, uh, it ought to cause us much delight. And it simply says, our God is in the heavens. So, again, think the context of territorial deities, but... He's in the he's in the highest heavens is the implication. He does all that he pleases. 
Um, it was a good uh, rap song, a little dated now, <laughs> that uh, repeats that about 140 times. But it's it's uh, it's quite lovely if your delight is in the Lord. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 32. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, he simply states to Jeremiah, remember that context if you can, Behold, I'm the Lord, again, the God of all flesh. Meaning what? Again, he's not just a tribal deity. He's not just the God of the Canaanites or the God of the Amalekites or just the God of the Israelites. He says, I'm the God of all flesh. Okay? All men, all creation. Is anything... In other words, I'm God Almighty. Okay, we just keep going back to that. He's El Shaddai. Is anything too difficult uh, for me? And remember, um, interestingly, uh, he just decreed the destruction of Judah in the verses previous to this. By the hands, do you remember? By the hands of the Chaldeans. We refer to them most often as the Babylonians. Right? So... You see, he controls all flesh, not just overthrowing the pride of Judah and overthrowing their fortifications, but the means through which that's accomplished. Those men um, uh, uh, also carry out his will, and and regardless of, of, of their native rebellions, Nothing's too difficult for God, and he'll do it exactly as he's purposed it and as he said it. Uh, similarly, look at the next one. This was actually came before in the chapter of Jeremiah 32, but um, uh, hopefully you'll see why I'm presenting it this way. Uh, this is after Jeremiah uh, buys a field um, amidst God's promise of restoration. So he's... All through Jeremiah, there's, you know, 90%, I'm going to destroy you because you're wicked. And then there are these 10% snippets like most of the prophets where it's, but I'm going to do this great thing and I'm going to restore you and I'm going to pour out my spirit upon you and I'm going to fulfill my promises to the patriarchs. All right? So uh, God tells Jeremiah to, to buy this field even though he's told him, best I can remember, even though he's told him, uh, I'm going to give the land over to the Babylonians. Now, would you go out and buy a bunch of property if you knew the Chinese were going to take over next month <laughs> and put you in a camp? It's, oh, it's very useless unless God is able to do what he says and you believe it. You see, oh yeah, I mean, that was the whole symbolism. The prophets, Old Testament prophets often lived out uh, like Ezekiel laying on his side for however long, cooking with dung, and like that was, or, or Hosea's wife and her unfaithfulness. Like they often lived out these prof prophetic imageries in their lives. They were called to that, and of course you see that all oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing. Is too hard for you. In fact, turn 
quickly, turn to Jer to that text, Jeremiah 32. I didn't put it, that on here, but this is worth, uh, let's see, I think that's after Isaiah. It's easy to find Isaiah. Uh, yeah, this is really, I think, neat. Um, because when Jeremiah, or when this affirmation is made in the text that nothing is too hard for you, um, because it's by your great power that you created the heavens and the earth, because, like we said, this doesn't make sense, and um, it's not logical to buy this to buy this field. Look at verse, what's the next verse? 18? Is everybody there? Yeah. So let's read 17 again and then go right into 18 and see how that's connected. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O oh, great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty in deed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. See, as you go on, that tells you so much about God's omnipotence. Okay, He has the power to judge. He has the power to restore. Um, and think about this, and we'll, we'll conclude sort of with this with Christ um, in Revelation 20, hopefully. But um, if God isn't all-powerful, in the sense that he's, as we defined it, able to do all his holy will. That's a little children's catechism we do here somewhere. I don't know which one it is. Um, but it, it answers very nicely. Not that means God has all power, but he is able to do all that he wills to do. But if, if, if that isn't the case, how does he judge all flesh? How does he break the necks of kings and presidents and emperors? I mean, you see the implication? We tend to just glance over that, but like, the text is implying these things. Like he, he will, anywho, we'll talk about more when we get to Revelation 20. I just wanted to see that you to see that when Jeremiah says nothing is too hard for you, he's referring to God's power both to prosper and to destroy, right? He, whatever he purposes, he's able to carry out. Um, and if the love of the love for God and the fear of the Lord does not arrest your heart, and the affections for Him are not chief, and you hear that, you think, well, that's terrible, and you view Him as a despot, right? But if the fear of the Lord is is in your heart and and faith in him and love for him are, are are your chief affections and you hear that see you praise him right because you trust his goodness you trust his goodness even in his judgment see and and you're grateful that he has the power to make all things right and to break the necks of his enemies um 
But if you're an enemy of God, you hear that, you rend your garment, right? And you shake your fist to heaven in futility. <clears throat> All right, let's try to go through some of these more quickly. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. We've looked at this a lot, so I'll try to go uh, through it. But remember the former things of old, for I'm God and... There's no other. Okay, we remember this. The author of Hebrews said, quoted this for Christ, I think. I'm God, and there is none like me. So there's no other God, and there's none to whom you could compare. There's no similitude for God. See, so it's going from the broader to the more specific. And so, in other words, with the with the Jehovah's Witness idea, with Christ as a lesser God in similitude to Him, well, no, there's none like Him. There's just Him. There's just the one triune God of heaven. What does this one triune God, of whom there's no comparison or similitude, do? Verse ten, He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done. Saying, how can he do that? This is what I want you to see how this, because it's not just about his omniscience here. The stu here, particularly, it's about his omnipotence. How can he declare the end from the beginning? Well, you can say, well, he just knows what's going to happen. But that's not what the text says. He can declare the end from the beginning because his counsel, you know, his plans will stand. Right? The things he decrees will stand, his purposes will be accomplished, right? because no one can resist his will. <laughs> we see that in Romans 9. There's a, I don't know, we could spend like weeks on this, but let's, let's just try to focus in on what it's saying about God's omnipotence. Um, uh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, now remember who's Pharaoh? The king of Egypt, essentially, right? Not exactly, but the, the potentate of Egypt. Um, uh, at the time, arguably, the most powerful uh, um, dignitary in the world, right? Um, and it says, the scripture says to Pharaoh, uh, for this purpose, I have raised you up. So who gave Pharaoh his power? God. Okay, so Pharaoh's great might was given to him by God Almighty, by El Shaddai. What purpose? That I might show my power in you. That my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So, what does that mean? He raised up into power to show how great his power is. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it interesting he has to give men power? <laughs> you know, he did that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's... Right. Yeah. The king's heart's like water in the Lord's hand. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. And that's a omnipotence too there that the the king's heart we think kings we think of like downton abbey you know like ceremonial 
dainty. But like most of the world, you think king, you think, you know, a uh, 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 sovereign who can, at his whim, destroy your family, burn your field, seize your land, and no one can say otherwise unless they amass more power. And I mean, so, so when we hear the king's heart is like water in the Lord's hand, he directs it wherever he wants to. I mean, in, in the ancient world, that's saying the same thing. God does whatever he pleases and no power on uh, earth, heaven, or hell can do anything about it. And so Romans 9, then 18, he says, So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, he hardens whomever he wills, and we need to remember, we looked at that, but say it real briefly, um, uh, Pharaoh's rebellion was his own. God removed the restraints of common grace and in thereby entrenching Pharaoh in his rebellion, furthering him in his rebellion, um, bypassing over him. But, then verse 19, of course, Paul make, make anticipating the objection. Uh, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for what? Who can resist his will? Right? That's the logical. If God's all powerful, you remember uh, the implication being he is. Of course, you remember Paul's faithful response to that, don't you? What was it? Yeah, who are you, man, <laughs> to reply against God, the King James says. Um, Shall a thing form say to him who formed me, why have you made me thus? Da-da-da-da-da. So, anywho, but let's move on. Look at this next one. It's very short, but remembering the context, it's profound. We're, we're moving toward a Christward focus now and seeing how he's omnipotent. But uh, similar to Sarah... Who was who uh, was beyond the physical ability to have children? Uh, Mary too is told uh, that she's going to bear a child, and it's it's going to be conceived of the Spirit. And she says, "How can this be? Since I'm a virgin, like Sarah, this is impossible, physically impossible." Not saying she was faithless, okay, but she wonders. How's this to be accomplished? This is beyond the laws of physics, to put it in our uh, common parlance. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably sincerious. Uh, sincerious. I think that's a different word with a different meaning. Um, serious or and sincere question. Yeah, yeah, a faithful one. And of course, she's told what. Nothing will be impossible with God. Remember, he can accomplish all his holy will, as the catechism says. Um, remember this from the rich young ruler passage where, uh, you know, Jesus said, keep the law perfectly. He said, I did. <laughs> and he says, okay, well then sell all your stuff, give to the poor, exposing the idol of his heart. And he goes away sad. Jesus said, it's easier how hard it is for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is not a gate in Jerusalem. Like He was trying to say it's impossible, and we see that from their response, because they say, then 
look at our text, they're greatly astonished and they say, who then can be saved? Their understanding is to say, him to say, this is impossible. Because the rich young ruler asked, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Right? And Jesus showed him how he couldn't do, in the sense that he was thinking, works that would inherit that would cause him to inherit eternal life. So so he gives that analogy. And then verse twenty six, of course, Jesus looked at him and says, With man this is impossible, but similar to what we saw before, but with God all things are possible. Okay? Nothing nothing is outside of the reach of his sovereign will. Of course it's will. Now our next verse shows us what that refers to, and it's an it's an uncommon but very important passage for understanding God's omnipotence. Okay, that's why I volleyed it up with that one, um, with that impossible thing, squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. Romans one sixteen, Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what the power of God." For salvation. Now, um, how is the gospel the chief display of God's omnipotence? <laughs> because he accomplishes what's impossible. Right? What does he do? He justifies the ungodly. Like if you ever heard me teach or preach or anything, like you've probably heard that every time, how can he if justify means to declare righteous, how can he declare legally that the unrighteous are righteous and be consistent with his own nature? Again, remember the definition. God's unconditioned power to do that which he wills in accordance with his nature. And the righteousness of Christ Imputed to the men for whom he worked, for whom he stood in their place. So, yeah, amen. That's a good place to, <laughs> uh, to pause and say, praise God for his omnipotence. Because he's accomplished something that's much more impossible than a virgin birth. I mean, that's impossible. Okay. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is. And so was Sarah, postmenopausal Sarah, and like lots of other miraculous births. But what he's doing here, making dead men live, making sinners saints, enemies friends, declaring the righteous, righteously declaring the unrighteous to be righteous. See that? That's omnipotence. Okay? Now, let's look particularly at the omnipotence of Christ, which the premise of this study is then if Christ is said to be omnipotent, then he must be fully God. Because we've seen that that exclusively in the Old Testament is referred to as an attribute of God, an incommunicable attribute, meaning uh, he doesn't share that with others. Remember this from Hebrews 1.3. He, who's it talking about for sake of time? Christ, right? He 
is the effulgence, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. Those stand alone, but we've already covered them. And look at this. He upholds the universe. In, in Hebrew cosmology, we would say what? Heaven and earth and sky and sea. Remember, and we looked at those. He upholds it all, the cosmos, by the word of whose power? His own power. Christ. Right? After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now don't miss that. What's being denoted by that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's um, not just at the right hand of God, which which denotes equal authority, but what? On high. Don't miss that. Like, the most high God, the God above all gods, and the man Christ is seated at his right hand. Just, you know what stuck out to me? It said, imprint of his nature. You know what an imprint is? That's us right, yeah. as a, if you were to... On a crime or something, there's an imprint or something about me that, 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 that tells me that I did it. Right. I'm that very person. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. I'm, of course, I'm taking this out of content right here a little bit. <laughs> but but if the imprint means it's that the that's God. Right? It's the stamp. Yeah. So it's it crossed in His humanity then bears the imprint of the invisible God. The icon, the image. So it's like a wax stamp that, yeah. So it's it's an incarnate. It's a reference to the incarnation of God Himself, if that makes sense. We covered that at one point, but it's been a while back. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's saying Jesus is God. I mean, like without, he's showing the supremacy of Christ to Moses and angels and everything. Uh, uh, revered in the old covenant other than God himself so yeah that's beautiful and then remember Isaiah 9 6 it's Old Testament but we know to whom it refers and that's Christ for to us a child is born to us a son is given the government shall be upon his shoulder now look his name the child's name will be wonderful counselor that's omniscience right? planner El Gabor, that's a different word, but it's that word Gabor is like the word for champion, or like, I think like David's mighty men kind of thing, like the warrior who represents the entire army and whom the army puts all their hope. See, but prefixed with El, short for God, right? Um, I think that's it. Uh, uh, but the child then is called. The great God, the mighty God, El Gabor, everlasting father. And that's probably in the sense of ancestor. So don't mess up your Trinitarian theology with that. But again, attribute of eternality to the son that's given. Right? Uh, so on, so on. But I really want to get to this Romans 1, 8 as our time is fleeting. And this goes back to what uh, 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 I think everybody was in here. Was everybody in here? To hear Brandon's uh, Jehovah's Witness thing when we looked at okay M Melissa wasn't so briefly again because we, like, we, we got to set this up 
God Almighty, El Shaddai, Most High God, they say. Yeah. A lesser God. Okay. So you see that if if, he's, if if it says that Yahweh is Almighty God, means all other deities must be under Him, subordinate in some way. So they say Christ is subordinate to Him. But of course, the problem is in Revelation one eight. Not just here, but it's very clearly here. What does Christ say? And we looked at this before um, because it begins with I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. But we looked at how throughout Revelation on two or three different places, Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Um, and this is the revelation of him. This is the one who was, is, is to come. The, the Almighty. Of course, it's a Greek word, but when we, when we see that coupled together, um, we say, well, uh, who's this referring to? Is it referring to Christ, Jesus, or to Yahweh? It's not the answer I'm looking for. Yes. Is this referring to Yahweh or Jesus? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's why I drug that out. There is no difference Well, there's distinct. There's the, yeah, you have to be careful. <laughs> there's distinctions, but there's one inessential being, right? Uh, uh, so, yeah. Now, Revelation 20, look at that with me on there. This is beautiful. We we talk, Thankfully, we kind of talked about this before because this says much about Christ's omnipotence. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Okay, we remember the context. Who is it? Christ, right? Yeah, it's a great throne. From Christ's presence, earth and sky fled away. And understand that cosmological, again, implication right there. All of heaven and earth does what? It recedes in his presence. Right? Nothing takes away, detracts from his glory, from his primacy. When he sits in, on the throne here to make all things right, what happens? <laughs> Everything else <laughs> flees. And there's only him. Right. Understand that. Like that's. Um, and then verse 12 I saw the dead. Great and small, what does that mean? That means kings and peasants. That means presidents and day work, day laborers. Okay? That means emperors and toilet scrubbers. Standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. So notice just the the power here, the supremacy 
over all things. Not and not just positionally, but in the ability to carry it out. See, he breaks the neck of Nero here. Okay, <laughs> think of the the havoc that Nero he breaks the neck of who was the one Diocletian who was such a persecutor of the church early church here they bow before his throne you see that the mighty and the great and the small and kings and even death and Hades are powerless to resist him you see that? When he summons men to judgment, what happens? <laughs> they come and they bow. I forgot where we left off. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death of the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, I want you to see the violence, the violent language here. They weren't led off to the lake of fire. They were what? Thrown. Thrown. They were cast. Do you see that's forcefulness? See, that's power. (laughs) That's power to accomplish his purposes in accordance with his will. Now, but we'll end on a positive note here. Not that that is positive for a Christian, actually. Like a God that doesn't uh, uh, do this is not righteous, um, and it should make us thankful for what we see in this next verse that we deserve our necks to be broken too. Do we not? Yes. That's right. And He's broken the neck of His Son in our stead. We just need to understand that and praise and exalt and glory in Him for that. Um, but let's be reminded of this, Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is where? It's in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior. Now, remember, this is post-cross. So this is like still us here. We still await a Savior and a salvation. To come, a more full expression of our salvation, right? the glorification of our bodies. Uh, and that's, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Right. Okay. How's he going to be able to do that? Look at the text. Because he's God Almighty. <laughs> because he's El Shaddai. It's by the power that enables him to subject or subject everything, all things, death and Hades and and Nero and me to himself. He's God most high. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, see, because of the omnipotence of Christ, Stand firm thus in the Lord. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the words we've read and the, the truths that they convey. Thank you that our Lord, our King, our representative, our priest, 
our intercessor, our advocate is omnipotent. That he has the power to subject all things to himself. We praise you for that. And we praise you that his will toward us is benevolent. And his exercising of that power is for our eternal good. We praise you for that. Help us to be faithful to him and to serve him. To bow the knee willingly with, with, uh, with sincere hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.